Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! But back to the series here, um, Feast, Fast, and Faith, Understanding Jesus to the Rhythms of the Old Testament. Now, this is uh, a series about how the Bible fits together. Ultimately, that's really what we're doing. And then, how does that then connect with Jesus? Because I know it can be sometimes difficult to understand how the beginnings of the Bible connect to that. And then a third thing that can be difficult is to see how all of that makes any difference in your life today in 2023. Because if you study these feasts and these fasts, if you do this, if you ever come across these in the Old Testament, you're going to misunderstand them if you don't know that the Bible does, in fact, all fit together. If you don't understand that that the Jesus of the New Testament is what's being forecasted in the Old Testament, and if you don't understand that all of this has something to do for your life, you are going to have confusion about the feasts. You are going to have confusion about the Old Testament especially, but then even in the New Testament. It's going to be hard to draw those parallels to your life if you don't understand this important truth. That the Bible, although it was written for you, it wasn't written to you. Okay? And that's what makes it kind of tricky. The Bible absolutely is written for you, but it wasn't written to you. There's a much different culture that those words are spoken into, so it can be a little tricky to understand that stuff. However, I want you to think about these fasts. I want you to think about the truths of the Old Testament even as these time capsules, right? That there was truth in there for those people that they experienced just like a time capsule, right? If you took something of your life right now and you buried it in the ground to be dug up in 100 years, that stuff would mean something to you right now, wouldn't it? But it would also mean something to the people that dug it up. And that's really what we're looking at with, yes, the Bible, but really the feasts that we've been looking about. There's a truth there for us even today. And so launching into that is important, I think, to understand that um, because as we sit here, either you are here because you're interested in Christianity, you know, you wandered into a Christian church, that's who we are, by the way, spoiler alert, or you are a Christian and you're here to learn more about your faith and grow in your faith. You're on board with our mission to love God, love others, and help people start and grow a relationship with Jesus. So you're in process of growing with Jesus. That's what we're helping people do by studying scripture. And so, as a part of that, to say, okay, my Christian faith is rooted in what? Old Testament. There we go. Yes, Jesus, absolutely. But our Christian faith, even in Jesus, is still rooted very much in the Jewish faith. Because that's who Jesus was. That was a world that he grew up in. That was his understanding. That's what the New Testament writers were speaking to. was a context of the Old Testament and Jewish faith. So, it's good for us to know those things. And that leads us to our question. So, how do the Old Testament feasts and fasts and festivals, how does all that stuff inform our modern faith today? This has been our driving question to understand these feasts in a way that affects you today. What was God actually saying to these people? Not just bring the lamb, bring the barley, bring the wheat, bring the wine, bring the whatever. It wasn't just about that. There was meaning behind that that's speaking to your life today in 2023 as well. Something God's trying to communicate. And so each week, again, 
to answer this question, we're addressing five different questions to really try to help boil this down to understand what this feast is or what this fast is and what it means today. So the first question is, where do we find it in the Bible, right? We always want to go there. If you haven't noticed yet, we're always basically in Leviticus 23. I go to Leviticus 23 because that is kind of the quick version of all these feasts and festivals. It's like, okay, here's what the people need to do. Deuteronomy lays out in real detail what the priest is supposed to do and like what the religious people are supposed to do. How do they make this thing happen? But Leviticus, Leviticus 23 is kind of short and sweet and it's like, hey, this is what's expected of the people. And that's why we're in Leviticus 23 because it just lays them all out quickly. Then what time of the year is it? Because that's important. Was it a fall festival? Was it a spring festival? Like, what was it celebrating? That's why it's important to know that. And so we're briefly in there every week. Then our third one, uh, and f- like that goes together with our fourth one, what was it? And then why did they celebrate it? Those are two closely related questions. There's, okay, the, what exactly were they doing? But I think more importantly, why did they celebrate it? What was supposed to be going on in their hearts? And then for us today, how does it connect to Jesus? And then... Why does it matter to us? I know for a lot of us, this is the thing. When we read scripture, it's like, okay, but what am I supposed to do with that? Um, Bear and I actually talk about this a lot because Bear is a super concrete kid and he has trouble just imagining himself in like other scenarios that he's not really a part of, right? And so for him, it's like, okay, I get all these stories and I might know like the truths of them, but we're always having to help him draw out what does that mean for you, little man? You know, like what does it matter that God created the world? What does that say about God? that he did it i'm like yeah cool but that he did that that he spoke creation into existence like what exactly does that mean right for us that we have a god that can do that kind of thing and so i think it's always always important to be asking that last question is okay god what is that what are you saying to me even though you didn't write it to me it is for me so what does that mean and that's what also what we're trying to do in these feasts and these festivals And the themes that I don't want us to forget, and we're going to see them today, especially these themes that are pretty heavy in the in these festivals. One is relationship. Uh, God's saying, I want relationship with you. I want you to be connected to me, Israel. And that leads to their identity. You are mine, Israel. And I don't want us to miss how big that those first two are. Thirty five hundred years later, Jews are still celebrating this stuff. Right. We did Passover Seder recently together and that was an awesome experience and that's a 3500 year old ceremony that they are still doing by the letter other than eating lamb they don't eat lamb anymore which i learned at the seder i just assumed they did but they don't they haven't done it since the temple was destroyed in 70 a.d but 3500 years has gone by and they're still doing that and the jewish people still have their identity unfortunately a lot of them have kind of like left god out of that but interesting that god said i want you to know who you are And then the faithfulness of God. Some of the ones that we looked at, like Passover, they had to celebrate. They celebrated their freedom before they actually had it. You know, which is interesting, right? They were still slaves in Egypt in Exodus 12 when he said, here's the dinner I want you to celebrate because you're going to be free. So in faith, they had to celebrate that before they were gone. Faithfulness of God. In the future, faithfulness on on God to look back on. And then obviously Jesus' world, um, you know, these are the, like, he was doing these celebrations. We see him going to these feasts. And then they pointed to him and then ultimately fulfilled by him. That was one of the big things that's cool. We're going to see two points on this today is the precision of God. If you went to the Seder, uh, he talked about that a little bit. Just the precision of God, that Jesus, the Passover lamb, will be sacrificed outside the city on the same exact day. Probably, actually, 
historically speaking, at the same exact hour as the Passover lamb was being sacrificed in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple. So here they are sacrificing their Passover lamb in the temple, and here's Jesus, the Passover lamb, dying for the sins of the world outside the city. Same exact, exact day, probably the same exact time. Like, could, if Jesus was just a man, could he orchestrate that? Absolutely not. Absolutely not, right? So it's just interesting to see that. And we'll see another little bit uh, on that today with the Feast of First Fruits. So the, the ones we've been hitting so far, um, I think foundationally, what is really, really important to all these is that relationship principle, but it's also how God, like, how God cares about us. And you see that in Shabbat or in the Sabbath. Uh, all of their holidays are grounded on this idea of rest. And I think, again, what does that say about God? That he actually wants you to rest. And that doesn't mean just not doing anything. Some of you can really stress yourselves out not doing anything. You're looking at one. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's, it is. It can be hard for me for downtime. But uh, like I said, uh, this is something for me. This is like an area of my life that I know I need to get better at. Because if I don't, I'm going to burn out, right? I will. Pastors do it all the time. They flame out because they do too much. Or they never give their minds and their souls a rest. Right. And so I am personally trying to make this a better part of my rhythm of life because God, this is not just some rule to follow. It's not just some rule to follow. I looked at it a long time like that. And if you grew up in church a while back, you probably did as well. Like, oh, no, that's Sunday. You can't do anything on Sunday. And we're just legalistic about it. It's just a rule to follow. And God's like, no, no, I want you to rest. That's what I want is I want you to rest and I want you to spend time with me. About relationship, right? And all the feasts and festivals are founded on this principle of Shabbat, of rest, right? And how important that is, time with God, how important that is. All right, so then we looked at Rosh Hashanah, which technically means in Hebrew, head of the year. That's what Rosh Hashanah means. It's a September festival, and so kind of through tradition, this Feast of Trumpets became the Jewish New Year. That's not what it is in the Bible, though. The Jewish New Year in September is not a biblical thing at all. That's a historical, traditional thing. The Feast of Trumpets was all about getting your heart ready for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It was all about Thanksgiving, right? Bringing an offering to God. Hey, everything I have in this fall festival time, this harvest time, everything I have, Lord, is because of you. I'm just going to recognize that. That's really what this is about. Not about good luck for the next year. Not about God writing you into his good book or bad book for the next year, because that's what it's become, right? That the Yom Kippur celebration, which is next, the Yom Kippur celebration is going to be all about, I need to manipulate God, and it's going to start with Rosh Hashanah for the next 10 days so that I can get into the book of life for the next year. That's kind of what it's become, right? But we do the same thing, right? We try to manipulate God a little bit too, don't we? For our own purposes. It's a very human thing. But Yom Kippur is the high, high, holy holiday of the year for Jews. It is that one time when the, the high priest is going to go in and give atonement for the whole entire nation. But it's supposed to be a reminder that they need God for that, right? But just shortly after this, they get to celebrate for a week. So they have Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. This one was cool for me personally because it was a reminder. So the one before the Day of Atonement, like that's what Jesus did, right? He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, First John 2, verse 2. He is atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's cool. And then wh what does that mean for me, New Testament especially, is the Feast of Tabernacles? Because the Feast of Tabernacles did a couple things for those people. It reminded them of their time in the desert, living in tents, and it also reminded them that God was with them living in a tent. Again, here we are back to relationship. 
God desiring to be with his people. So there was just two things. And then you get to the New Testament. And then Paul starts saying, hey, oh, by the way, now you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now you are where God is supposed to dwell. So we have in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the temple where God's spirit dwelled. Then we have John 1, Jesus tabernacled with us. So he was literally here as God living with us, breathing with us, doing life with us. And then he said, okay, now I'm going to hand it off to you and you're going to be the, the temple. You're going to be where the Holy Spirit resides. And Paul in the New Testament pick up on that idea big time. So the thing is, here's the, here's the rub for us. Are you a place where people can go individually and experience God? Are you a tabernacle? That's what the tabernacle was supposed to be. That's what the temple was supposed to be. A place where people can go and be with God. And that is why Jesus flips out at the temple, right? Because what were they doing? They were taking advantage of travelers that were coming in. The money changers were like really, really just taking it to these people, right? Oh, yeah, I'll exchange your money at like a 10% interest rate, basically, right? Or like a triple the rate. And so it was, it was awful. And then not only that, but if you understand how the temple area is set up, they had their tables set up where Gentiles were supposed to be able to go and worship. So not only were they, they getting just roughshod run over them when they tried to come in, the Gentiles had literally had their space taken away so they could no longer access God. It's a pretty good analogy for us. Pretty good analogy for us. Are we stopping people from accessing God when we're supposed to be a conduit as Christians for people to experience God? That's how Jesus got upset, was because those people who knew better were blocking people off taking advantage of them and blocking people off from God. And when I see a pastor fail, or when I see a church fail because of this kind of stuff, I'm thinking, man, Jesus would just, I wonder if that's him flipping out, if he's exposing these leaders, if he's exposing these type, types of churches that are just taking advantage of people and blocking people from God. But I wonder in our own lives, again, in our own lives, do you see it as that serious? Because Jesus, your Savior, if he is, certainly saw it that serious, that you are a representative of him, and that's what a tabernacle is. It's where the Spirit of God dwells. So that one for me was a very, very convicting one personally for me, just to make sure that I am that. And so that gets us to the end of the fall cycle. And then we wrapped around and we did Passover together and Unleavened Bread. Now, Passover, of course, is a one-day holiday. It starts on 14 Nisan, followed immediately the next day by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. By the New Testament time, it's just Passover week, right? So they're actually two different holidays celebrating the same thing, but there's a time in the spring where your, your Passover lamb is going to be sacrificed, right? And of course, Jesus on the same day, this is happening on the week of his crucifixion. Thursday would have been the day that the Passover lamb at the temple was sacrificed. Jesus being sacrificed Thursday. And the, again, the precision of God's plan in making that happen, right? Because why didn't it happen on Friday? Well, because Friday was a high Sabbath day. And then Saturday was the regular Sabbath day because Friday was the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You're not going to be doing anything on that Friday, um, certainly not trying to do all this work to have somebody crucified and then everything else that went with it and the, the trial and all that other stuff, they're not going to be doing that, right? Because that was a high Sabbath day, the beginning of this festival right here of Unleavened Bread. Now, that matters too because what we're looking at today with the feast of, well, the day of first fruits is what we're looking at today. So Jesus being that and then Jesus a few days later actually literally fulfilling this. Before we get in any, any, any of that, let's look at where it is in Scripture first. This day of first fruits. What exactly was going on? What exactly was it? 
that God was wanting them to do. So in Leviticus, again, 23, here we are. Um, on a weekly basis, we're probably going to be in Leviticus 23 or the book of Leviticus, maybe more than we will for the next decade. Uh, we're just we're spending a lot of time in Leviticus, um, but not to say that it is pointless or useless, uh, because, again, the time capsule idea, the idea that God was saying something about himself, because when you do a read through for the next time, here's my quick advice for you. When you do a read through of Leviticus, understand that God is starting something brand new with his people. He's trying to get them to understand Unlike in Egypt, where you could manipulate gods, he is not like that. There is only one of him, and there's not a god for every single thing out there under the sun, which, of course, the Egyptians believed, and culture around them believed. God was like, I am the only one. You can't manipulate me. If you want to be in my presence, this is what holiness looks like. And that's why there's 613 laws that are impossible to keep. Because God says, if you want to be in relationship with me, it's really impossible unless I do something. So that's Leviticus. That is Numbers. That is Deuteronomy. It's really impossible to live in my presence because I'm holy. But here's how you can do it, because I'm going to make this happen. So that's a theme, Old Testament and New Testament, right? So again, understanding the Old Testament, what is he trying to say? The, you know, these bigger ideas. Not that it's like, oh my gosh, I'm reading Leviticus and it's just coming alive for me. I'm not saying that that would necessarily happen. But understanding what God was doing is very helpful when you're reading the Old Testament law. All right, so let's read uh, these few verses here and see what he says to Moses. So he says, Speak to the Israelites and tell them, When you enter the land, I'm giving you, so that's important too, when you enter the land, so they're not there yet. This is in Leviticus, right? And you reap its harvest, you are going to bring the first sheaf, and that's a bundle, uh, a bundle probably of barley, because that's the first harvest. So you're going to bring this bundle to the priest. That's kind of a thanksgiving offering. And he's going to present the sheaf before the Lord. And if you go over to Deuteronomy, you're going to see that he waves the sheaf, right? And so people don't really know what that means. It's like, what exactly was he doing? It was just like a physical thing. Like, here's my offering. And the priest is like, yes, here's your offering. And they're, they're waving it, right? So that you may be accepted. And the priest is to present it on the day after the Sabbath. So that'll be important for later as well, the day after the Sabbath. On the day you present the bundle, the sheaf, you are to offer a year-old male lamb without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. So here's another one. Passover was just, you know, a few days earlier, and now you're going to offer another lamb to the Lord. Now, its grain offering is to be four quarts of fine flour mixed with oil as a food offering to the Lord. And we'll see in a minute why all this stuff is important. A pleasing aroma, and its drink offering will be one quart of wine. And then you must not eat bread roasted grain, or any new grain until this very day, and until you have brought the offering to your God. And last, this is to be a permanent statute throughout your generation, wherever you live. So again, it's, it's interesting, some of these things, here we are, you know, 3,500 years ago, this is a permanent statute, and it's like, and it's still happening. That's just an interesting point to consider. You know, the guy was like, don't ever stop doing this. And as much as the Jews have, like, you know, been in good places and bad places with God, and good places and bad places in this world, they just continue to be like, okay, and take this seriously. Like, we're going to keep doing these things for 3,500 years, right? Just think about any tradition in your life. Have you, has anything lasted that long in your own life? I mean, 3,500 years is almost unfathomable, right? So there's kind of the nuts and bolts of it, and that's what he wanted the people to do. Again, Leviticus 23, speaking to what I want the people to do. Deuteronomy, typically, this is what the priests do from your side. And it's a lot more detailed because there's a lot more that they have to do, and so it gives a little bit more detail. But 
ultimately, though, what exactly is going on here? So let's look at this uh, next one here. This, uh, the, what was expected of the people, right? What was happening? What time of year are they doing this? Well, they're doing this in the fall because it's a fall festival. It is the very first harvest, the barley harvest, and they're having an opportunity now to come before the Lord with this brand new offering during the Feast of Unleavened Bread and say, Lord, thank you for the very, very first, first fruit. Thank you for the very first thing. I'm going to bring it to you, the animal, the wine, the grain, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm going to bring this to you, Lord, because I know everything I have as a gift from you. Now, the only part people aren't sure on is when exactly this happened. They know that it was a barley harvest because it was the first one. They know that it was during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They know that it was after the Sabbath, but they don't know which Sabbath. Most people, Christians throughout history, have said what's probably after that Saturday Sabbath. So when, during the week of Jesus' crucifixion, would he have been resurrected? Sunday, on the day of first fruits. So that's why the New Testament, more than likely, picks up so heavily on this idea that Jesus is the first fruit. Because when he resurrected was the very day that they were celebrating the day of first fruits. That's significant because of how that is picked up in the New Testament. It's how and like and then what it means for us to understand what exactly is a feast of first fruits offering. Right? Like what's going on there? Like what's what exactly is, is being said there? But if that if those two things do coincide, that's very, very significant because it pinpoints the precision of God. Not only was Jesus crucified on the Passover day, but he was also resurrected in the very next holiday that was, and we're going to get into this in a second, that meant all of these really rich things for the people. Because there was a few different things that they were supposed to bring on this offering. Again, just to kind of recap where we were in Leviticus, there's, there's the barley bundle that they're going to bring, because that, rep, again, represented the very first, the very best of what they had. And then they were going to do the animal, the lamb. So now here's lamb number two in this kind of week of celebration during Passover. And then they're going to bring the flour, the fine flour, and a little bit of olive oil mixed into it. And then they're going to bring wine. And you don't see it in this one, but in Deuteronomy it says just pour it out. Just pour it out. As just, a, just I'm grateful for this. You were the, as, if you were at the Passover Seder with us, that was a, um, a prayer that Mitch had us say over and over and over again was that the Lord is the Lord of the vine, right? He's the one that brings the produce, right? He's the, brings the grapes of the vine. And so that's who God is. And why does he have him choose all this stuff, though? Why the barley? Why the flour? Why the lamb? Why the wine? They're all staple parts of that diet. These are all pretty major parts. Uh, wine, lamb, I mean, all these things that were, were very important parts of their life. And so because of that, God says, I want you to connect that with me. I want you to understand that we're in relationship and I'm blessing you, right? I'm caring for you. And so this is an act of faith. It's an act of thanksgiving. So again, the feast of first fruits was like really tied up into a lot of those things. Well, why do you think that they celebrated it though? What was going on when in Leviticus 23, when they heard this? So this is also a helpful thing when you're reading scripture. What exactly was happening in Leviticus? So they're, they're out, right? They're like, they're kind of, they're away from Egypt, but they're where? Yeah, they're just wandering in the desert now, which is not great. If anybody of you has wandered in the desert, I have. You know what I'm talking about. Wandering in the desert, not a great experience, right? 
uh, especially if you're doing it on foot and you're walking around and you don't really know where you're going. And uh, it is kind of like the military. But you have this understanding, though, a little bit better if you're like, okay, they're not there yet. They are not there yet. And so God is saying, when you get to where you're going, you're going to have this celebration. Because you're going to go from a nomadic, disobedient people who don't really know where you're going or what's going on, to now all of a sudden you're an established, agrarian, blessed people. It's going to happen. This is a promise. God says, it's going to happen. When you get there, when I give you the land, when you start to plant your own crops, when that first crop comes out, I want you to give thanks. You're a wandering kind of like used to be slave right now. And most of you are disobedient and you're not even going to get to see this promise. But because I'm good, because I love you, in spite of your disobedience, here's a promise I have on the other side of it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to take care of you. And I want you to remember this. It's a really big deal. This is not going to happen. This celebration is not going to happen for like 40 years. Right? Because they're not, they're not even like off Mount Sinai yet. So this is God again saying, I will provide for you. And I wonder how does that land with you today to know that, okay, things right now are not good. Maybe I'm facing some consequences because of my disobedience. Maybe just life is not fair right now. But God's saying, but I got you. Because that's kind of what he's saying to them. So what he said with Passover, don't worry, I've got you. It's about to get really intense. It's about to get really scary. You're about to run and you're going to feel like you're running for your life, but I got you. And I want you to celebrate this little feast as a promise that I've got you. Like, that's like, that's where we live most of the time, right? We got to understand that. And so this is just a very tangible way for them to understand that and celebrate it. That God says, look, you're going to take part in this Thanksgiving. Now, what they're going to do is, I think, three parts. And I want to kind of define the first fruits a little bit too, um, what was happening. So they're going to offer their best to God. And I want you to personalize this. Because this is important, this first fruits idea. They're going to bring their best to God always. It's, and that's part of our vision statement as a church, if you remember, right? We're going to be an authentic home for the hope of Christ through exceptional spirit led worship, connection, and service to our surrounding communities. They brought their best. When it concerned God, that was a big thing for them. Their offering was their best. And I wonder, do I bring my best as God? You know, as God would have me to do that, do I, with whatever my gifts are? Whatever my assets are, whoever I am, do I say, Lord, you've got the best of me? Or does he get my leftovers? Right? If I were standing before you and you get my leftovers, you'd know it, wouldn't you? You'd know it. It'd be pretty passionless. It would. I would just get up here and I would state facts to you. But I know that whatever role that I'm in, I want to do that well. And I want to, I want to bring it. Yesterday, when I was out for six hours fixing fields for Little League, that was the last thing in the world that I wanted to do yesterday. And I came home and my neck was fiery red. And then Asher was like picking at it and like, oh, look how red your neck is, Dad. And it like, I, I was like, wow, what are you doing back there? And she's like, look how red it is, right? But when I was there, I wanted to be the first person there because I wanted to get everybody else ready because I thought I'm going to lead this thing because it was my job to lead the whole day. And I said, I want to do this in a way that honors you, Lord. And I want to be in a position where I'm here first to support people, to do whatever I can to be a servant to these people. And for six hours, I went around just serving people, helping them, picking up shovels, doing whatever I could. And then I made sure I was the very last person to leave. Uh, and because I want to bring my very best because people know who I am. People find out pretty quickly, oh, yeah, you're that pastor over there. And it's like, bam, I'm on now. Like, I represent Jesus. And the accountability for that is like really, really high. 
it, you know, and I, and I know that because most people now that I bump into, they just know who I am. So now I'm having like, I'm digging a ditch with a guy and we're talking about Jesus and the importance of faith and life. And I'm like, all right, Lord, this is what it's all about. This is why we bring our best, right? I'm not going to be guy over there like, you know, leaning on the fence on my shovel, you know, like, no, yeah, that pastor from Quaybog. You know what I'm saying? That dude's a bum, you know? <clears throat> so bringing our best no matter what we do. Uh, and then a picture of what's to come, I think, is a cool part of that, too. That this is a picture of what's to come. That's the first fruit idea. This is the very first thing, but the goodness of God is coming. And then I'm going to trust him with that. Whatever's coming, I'm going to trust him with that. So there's this offering piece. There's this bringing my best piece. There's this trust. And then there's this, like, representative, representative nature of, like, I know the goodness is coming. I know the goodness is coming. Uh, it's, a, it's just a picture of what's to come. So because of that, I wanted to hit that definition before we got to this next one. How does it connect to Jesus? So again, just as an interesting point, right? Passover Thursday, crucifixion, Jesus is fulfilling that perfectly, literally, like on the exact day and, and maybe even the exact time. And then the Feast of First Fruits happens on Sunday, most likely when Jesus resurrects. Him saying, I'm a promise of what, what is to come, right? I'm like just looking ahead, like I am the best, right? I am like God himself. So Jesus literally is, is saying all these things. What the First Fruits Festival meant, he shows up and like resurrects on the day where they're celebrating the promise. They're celebrating the best. They're celebrating trust in the future. And Jesus is those things. Like, so again, it's no accident that Jesus did this and that God's plan and timetable worked out that way. And Paul specifically, like I said earlier, picks up on this. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, if you want a little bit of homework this afternoon or sometime this week, read all of 1 Corinthians 15. It's his master thesis about the resurrection, its importance, its reality, and the foundational nature of it to our faith. And we read last Sunday on Easter a portion of that, but I wanted to broaden it out just a couple verses to give us a little bit of context. So 1 Corinthians 15 says, For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. So there's this argument, right, that there is no resurrection that he's addressing. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Here's the struggle. Here's the reality of the resurrection. It's a difficult truth. Paul says, but if it's not true, this is all fake. Christianity dies with Jesus at his death, essentially what he's saying. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. There's no hope for them, right? If we put our hope in Christ. For this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. That's like a hard truth just to go ahead and throw out there. I think God understands the craziness of this reality, the craziness of this truth. And for him to say, for you to bet your life on it, to stake your very existence on this miracle is a pretty serious and heavy thing. And Paul recognizes that. God understands that. And he's speaking through Paul to say, look, if, if you only have hope in Christ for this life, man, you're wasting your time. That's, that's what he's saying. But thankfully, though, verse 20, we read last Sunday, as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. How convenient. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So Jesus is identified as the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep, or in other words, those who have died. So we have a hope in Jesus. Why do we have a future hope? Well, because he was resurrected. He said he's coming back. There's a hope for the future that he still has a plan even after his death, that he is coming back, that we can look forward to resurrection, that we can know that Jesus, if we're still here on earth, as Paul would say to the church in Thessalonica, he's coming back for us and we're going to meet him. Like that we still have hope. There is something still for the future. Jesus is the first fruit. It's a promise of something better to come. 
It's the trust that something better is coming. It is the very best, right? Jesus is the very best, right? And the hope that we have in him is the best. So he's perfectly fulfilling this according to Paul. So this is, um, again, not an easy truth, but it's one Paul is saying it's, it's worth betting your life on. You know, this first fruit idea is one we can trust in. And that's really what they were doing with the Feast of First Fruits. They were hoping for the best, right? They knew something better was coming. And God had them do this really physical hands-on thing, like most of the festivals were, to help them understand this. So, let me then ask the final question. How does this affect you? Why does it matter to us? What does this look like in your own life? And this is a big deal. Because, again, there's a couple different components for us to think about personally in the New Testament. One is your relationship status and how it changes when you accept Christ as your Savior. Or at least what should happen. What is the expectation? The first thing that Jesus says is, look, I'm going to leave. John 14, 15, 16. I'm going to leave. It's a good thing that I'm going because who's coming behind me? The Holy Spirit, right? The advocate, the helper, right? There's all these different terms, right? So the Holy Spirit is going to come and that's going to be a fulfillment. Jeremiah 31 in the Old Testament. Joel 2 in the Old Testament. This stuff is coming true. The Holy Spirit is going to live in you in a way like he did not before in the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, and this is a good thing. I need to go so he can come. So when that happens, that means something as well. And Paul picks up again on this first fruit idea in Jesus and in the Holy Spirit, right? We saw 1 Corinthians 15. And then here in Romans 8, look at this. We ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits. So again, what is a first fruit? What is that idea? It's the best. It's a promise of what's to come. And it's trusting that that better promise is going to happen. This is the Holy Spirit that we have. Right? This is a promise of what's to come. So that now lives inside of us, right? He, the Holy Spirit, lives inside you if you are a Christian. And that means something for you personally. And Paul also picks up on that. Look at this. So he says, we are God, or I'm sorry, James does. We are God's first fruits. So it transfers a little bit. Here's James, half-brother of Jesus. By his own choice, God, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that who would be kind of a first fruit? We would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So this is like a, again, the totality of this picture. God is, has a celebration, this time capsule coming down, communicating these truths. Jesus' resurrection perfectly fulfills this. He is that. Jesus says, now I'm going to send you something that's even better than me. And he's called the Holy Spirit, right? I'm going to send him. So the Holy Spirit then would live in us, but then that ultimately means something for us. That means you're a first fruit. And here's why I think this really, really matters. There are so many people that are disillusioned with life. There are so many people that are lonely and angry and hurting and mentally unwell because of isolation and trying to worship themselves and not finding any hope there, right? Because if you are the end-all, be-all of happiness and the purpose for existence, that's a pretty sad, lonely, empty, short road. Right? You're not going to find everything that you need in yourself. But we are trying our very, very best to find it. And we're seeing a lot of, especially young people, a lot of disaffected, marginalized, hopeless, directionless young people in our country. Because, again, we are all, in, a, in small ways, in little measures, buying into the idea that we can worship ourselves and find real happiness. Because it might be your job. It might be your kids. Right? It might be your friends. It might be some other status symbol. 
right? The hot button ones right now, of course, are gender, and everybody gets all hopped up about that. And they're like, oh, but it's like, hey, it's just another face of self-worship. But do you give yourself permission for self-worship, right? And this is where we need to, like, take our identity as followers of Christ, as tabernacles of the Holy Spirit, as first fruits, seriously. Like, we need to understand that when I say, I am a first fruit, that means I am an offering. It means, Lord, whatever I do, I'm going to give to you my very best. I'm going to offer you my hopes, my dreams, my will, my family, my job, my fears, all of that stuff. It's all yours. And I know that I am a promise of what's to come. Like, I have to see myself. You have to see yourselves as a promise of what's to come. We need to stop worshiping political parties. We need to stop worshiping celebrities and money and status. We, as Christians, need to stop doing that stuff. We have to, because the world needs us to. Right? Like, we have to be convinced of that, that I am a first fruit, and I have, I possess, in the knowledge of the gospel, and in the possession of the Holy Spirit, I have what the world needs. It's not like this thing for me. This is something like we have to be outwardly focused. And it's why we're adding a service, right? Because we want to make sure we have room here that people can bump into people that belong to Jesus in this space. Because people are showing up at Quaybog Church looking for something. They are. Like not theoretically, not hopefully one day they will. People are looking up this place, walking in these doors because they're looking for something that's real, something they can give their lives to, something that's not going to just take from them, something that's not empty. And Jesus Christ said, guess what? You, if you're a follower of mine, are a first fruit. You're an offering. You're a promise of what's to come. You're something that people can see. Man, I can put my trust in that. That's real. That's what the first fruit was. And that's us. Right? So there's all these things that we can get tied into or get tied down with. At the end of the day, do you see yourself as a first fruit? It's a great and challenging question. And the idea that I've been talking about this whole time with this is this last one. I, I thought I, I want to leave you with. We should always be willing to turn our best over to God, right? It's that offering, the first fruit offering. I should be willing to be a picture of what's to come, the promise that was given to them in Leviticus. And I should look to him for what's next, right? This is, again, this is a picture that he gave them in Leviticus of what was to come, and it was not here yet, and it wasn't going to be for 40 years. I want you to celebrate this when you get into the land that I give you. It's a promise of what's to come. So can I be an offering? Make me an offering. You know, we sing that song, right? Can I be a promise of what's to come? And can I look to him for what's next? I mean, that's, man, that's a huge thing all wrapped up in this little festival that most of us don't know anything about. But that's why it's such a big theme in the New Testament and why it's such an important theme for us. Because that is what changes the world. Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 4, all the way up through the book of Acts. That's what was happening. People were like all in on this idea and they're like, and it changed the world. Can we do that here in Quaybog? I think so. I think we can be a part of what God's doing in this little area, in this little corner of the world, just by doing little things like this, just by being like Jesus. The enemy's going to attack. We need to pray for each other, right? Because there is a lot of confusion. There is a lot of hard things going on out there. No, I don't believe in trans ideologies because there's multiples. I believe in loving trans people and God's doing cool things in trans people in our church. Did you know that? People like finding their like true identity. Like that's really cool and difficult and messy and people have left our church over it. But it's like, man, I'm just going to keep loving people and I'm going to point them to truth and it's messy. But look, connect, stepping into those messy places where God's at work. Let's do that, Quaybog Church. Amen?
All right, can you pray us out? All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for um, what you've prepared for us. I mean, <laughs> so many years ago, when you instituted these feasts, of course you had in mind your people at that time, but you also had in mind us, that uh, your son would come and pay that price, that we would be able to see so clearly the imagery that you knew this was the plan from the beginning. You did something so crazy with Jesus. He came and he lived. He died and then he rose again. He, be- he got to become that first fruit from the dead, but then the promise was extended to us as well. We are grateful for that. I pray we can take this very seriously, that uh, if we are to be first fruits, are we going to be uh, that testimony? Are we going to be able to live as if we represent that truth? I pray that as we're headed into our various missions fields, I pray that you're um, going to be with us. That was the promise. That you told us you'd be with us wherever we go. And so I'm praying that uh, as we go, we'll do exactly that. Be our strength and be our encouragement. And let us take very seriously your word when you tell us that uh, we get to be that first fruit. Father, we put this on your name. Amen. Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.